Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. All right, the sermon title this morning is Don't Give In from Galatians chapter 2, 1 through 10. You can go ahead and turn there. If you're new with us, we've been going right through the book of Galatians. And the idea with biblical preaching is to simply say what the text says. Whatever it says, preachers have to say it. That's what our role is. And so we want to be faithful to what the Word of God says. Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Let's read it, and then I'm going to to go ahead and pray again. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed to be influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who also slipped in to spy out on our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter... For his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we need wisdom and direction as we navigate these passages. Help us to submit to your word to be changed, challenged, and and walk out of these doors just a little bit different than we were before. God, we want to honor you through our hearing you speak. We want to respond to you appropriately. Holy Spirit, point us to Jesus. I trust that you will. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Spiritual warfare is a reality. Spiritual warfare is an absolute reality. And if you're a Christian, spiritual warfare will find you. There is a word that's been thrown around a lot. It has from denomination to denomination, church to church. Uh, It's been pulled from John chapter 17 and other places throughout the New Testament, this word called unity. And there is a unity that is good, right, true, and biblical. And it's the kind of unity that it gathers around the truth. We unify around the truth. But there is this false unity that only requires compromise, and it's false unity that we want to avoid as a congregation, we want to avoid as a church at large. False unity requires no courage at all, it requires only compromise. You compromise what you believe, you compromise biblical truth, I'll compromise biblical truth, and why it will all just act like we're getting along. That is false unity. And if you want to avoid spiritual warfare in your life, If you want just a tip on how to avoid spiritual warfare in your life, just compromise on everything that the Bible teaches and then just call it unity. Look how much I love people. I just don't actually believe anything. And if you do that, you'll end up, you'll end up, you'll avoid 
some suffering for a while or maybe some persecution or some uh, friendships you may be able to sustain for a little while. But if you compromise and compromise and compromise just to avoid spiritual warfare or to avoid uh, being in conflict with anybody, you'll end up selling out and you'll end up walking away from Jesus. Because your ultimate priority will, will be peace at all cost. And to follow Jesus means you're going to bring conflict into the world. So as a Christian, you are, like we talked about last week, you are dangerous to the world, the flesh, and the devil. You, me, all of us have to have courage, have to have courage to face our enemies and know that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We must take it to heart that Jesus has overcome the world and we cannot be afraid. We are those who conquer and overcome. That's who we are. Paul would not sacrifice the gospel of Jesus for the sake of false peace. We see that here today. It's very clear. He would not give in to false brothers. He wouldn't yield to false teachers to say, look how nice and kind. We can all play nice together. He would not do that. The gospel is under attack, was under attack, and Paul was ready to fight. And he's calling the churches of Galatia to be ready to fight. Now, what's interesting about Galatians chapter 2 is that we find it's, it's kind of a case study chapter. What's going on in the churches of Galatia has gone on before. And so Paul's going to use the example of the church in Jerusalem. We're going to see that today in the first 10 verses of the chapter today. And then in the next 11 verses, what we see next week is, uh, what we, what we see next week is that this has also happened in the city of Antioch as well, where Paul had to oppose Peter to his face. So these two case studies are going to be helpful to the churches of Galatia to say, listen, this has happened before. It's now happening in your churches. Here's what you need to do about it. And so Paul is going to be really clear with them. They're going to have to stand for the gospel of Jesus. In verses 1 through, through 2, we see the setup. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation it set before them, though privately before those who seemed to be influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had run my race in vain. Fourteen years after Paul was converted, so get our timeline right here. There's been some debate over the years what this 14 years is, but 14 years after his conversion, most likely, Paul goes to Jerusalem, and he goes with Barnabas, and he goes with Titus. So these are the characters in the story today. Paul, Barnabas, and Titus. They're going to Jerusalem, and they're going to talk to some apostles who are at Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem. Titus was a pastor who was mentored by Paul. If you don't know who Titus is, think First and Second Timothy and Titus. Titus was a pastor who had done a lot of ministry along with Paul. And Paul left him on the island of Crete later on, many years after this. Paul left Titus on the island of Crete. And he said to Titus, appoint elders in each town as I direct you. On this little island, there were many churches that were started from village to village to village. And Paul charged Timothy, go to each village village by village, and you put into place elders as I would have you do, and more importantly, as God would have you do. So, so Titus was a pastor. He was a young man who was being mentored by the Apostle Paul. And this is going to be good news for Titus. This is going to be really good news because as a grown man, he doesn't have to, be, he doesn't have to get circumcised. So that, that's a good thing, right? <laughs> if you get the news that Paul is going to fight for you to not be circumcised and you're a grown man, this is great. Now Timothy, on the other hand, we'll get to that here in a little bit, Timothy, as a grown man, was circumcised. So this is going to be good news for Titus. He does not have to be circumcised as a grown man without anesthesia, by the way. So praise the Lord. 
PTL. It was revealed by Paul. This is how the setup, this is how it all happens. He goes down to Jerusalem because Paul got a revelation from the Holy Spirit that he needed to go to Jerusalem and set before them the gospel that he preached. Now, we, we knew from last week that the Holy Spirit helped Paul understand and take all the things that he had learned from the great Gamaliel, who was a teacher in the Sanhedrin. God helped the Apostle Paul connect all the dots from everything that he had learned as a Pharisee. And helped him understand that this pointed to the gospel of Jesus. And this pointed to the gospel of Jesus. And as he is studying over all the Old Testament, it's like everything came into order and into alignment. And he understood how Jesus was the point of the whole Old Testament. And so he's been proclaiming this gospel of, by grace through faith in Christ alone. That you can be saved by Jesus and Jesus alone. Not by Jesus plus the works of the law. Not by Jesus and Moses, by Christ and Christ alone, can we be justified. And he has been preaching this gospel. And the Holy Spirit revealed to him, you need to go set before the apostles in Jerusalem this gospel you've been preaching. And so Paul headed back down into Jerusalem, and he wanted to make sure that he was not preaching the gospel in vain. He wanted to make sure that they were not compromised in Jerusalem. He did not want the church in Jerusalem, even though there was apostles there. And we see that these apostles, even with the Holy Spirit, that they can, they can walk in some great error. We see the apostle Peter. Next week we're going to look at this. And even Barnabas, who was with Paul in this story. We see even Barnabas being led astray by the apostles. And we can see that anybody in the church, even leaders in the church, can be led astray by false gospels. And so Paul wanted to make sure in Jerusalem that they had the pure gospel, not the watered down, not the murky, not to try to make everybody happy gospel, the real true gospel. And so the Holy Spirit led the apostle and Barnabas and Titus to go down to Jerusalem. And we see these two similar situations. We see in verse 3 that it's very similar to what was happening in the churches of Galatia. Look at verse 3. But even Titus who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out on our freedom that we have, that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Let's just stop and think about verse 3 for a minute. Jerusalem and Antioch. Paul goes there. Titus was Greek. And so the debate was raging amongst the Jewish Christians about the Gentiles and what they would have to do or not do once they trusted in Jesus. Would they have to get in line with Judaism? Would they have to be circumcised? Would they have to go up to the temple? Would they have to go and listen to the law of Moses in the same way that the Jew Jewish Christians would? What would be required of the Gentiles? And what, in fact, is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is it become a Christian and then do all the things that you're supposed to do according to the law of Moses? Is it Jesus plus works of the law to be justified? Or is it Christ and Christ alone? The debate was raging. Titus was a Greek. He was an uncircumcised Gentile. So would he have to be circumcised when he went to Jerusalem or would he not? Would he have to do something to enter in to the people of God? Would he have to do something to be a part of the kingdom of God? And we're told explicitly, Titus was not forced to be circumcised. He was not forced to be circumcised. Why? Because of the good news of Jesus Christ. He didn't have to receive that covenant sign because the blood of Christ is powerful enough to forgive Titus of all of his sins and put him on even playing field with Jewish believers. And anybody who is in Christ Jesus is in that level playing field of equally being united to Christ, fully having their sins forgiven, fully counted righteous in Christ Jesus, 
And so Paul went there to make sure that they did not require Titus to be circumcised and to make sure that they were not adding to the gospel of Jesus. And so there's a big question that rises up because if you know the book of Acts and if you've been studying your scriptures and reading through your Bible and doing the Bible reading challenge year after year, you know that Paul had Timothy get circumcised. Timothy was a half Jew, half Gentile. And Timothy got circumcised. Paul had Timothy get circumcised in Acts chapter 16. And the question that people have, have really raised over the, over the you know, centuries has been why? Why would Paul, I mean, just, it's the hill to die on, man. Like, do not require Titus to be circumcised. I will not back down. Do not circumcise him. The blood of Christ covers him. But then in Acts 16, he takes Timothy to get circumcised. And so why the duplicitous, at least it seems duplicitous, character of Paul when it comes to the same issue? Well, we find out that it isn't the exact same issue. It's a simple answer to the difference between Timothy and Titus. And, and I love this as you're studying the scriptures, and it's so important to connect dots like this because the, the world thinks and many Christians think that the Bible contradicts itself. And it's important for us as we're reading through our Bibles to know that the Bible never contradicts itself. It complements itself. It it interprets itself. It helps us understand as we're reading one passage of Scripture, it helps us understand another passage of Scripture. And here's what's going to happen as you read your Bible over the years. And however many, many years that God gives you, as you read over the years, there's going to be some things that unlock for you. And you're going to have some questions answered that you had years before. But as you've been studying, you, you know, you're looking back and thinking about uh, the things and the notes you wrote in the margins. And, and you'll realize five years later, after you wrote that note in the margin, you know what? That's not a question mark for, for me anymore. The Holy Spirit has helped me understand that. Now, I understand that because these, these verses over here have helped me understand these verses over here. And it's not a contradiction, sorry to the world and to any, any textual critic who would say otherwise. The Bible interprets itself. It complements itself. It's not at odds with itself. The simple answer to why Timothy was circumcised and Titus was not is because Timothy's instance of circumcision was not about justification by faith alone. Circumcision is fine as long as it's not put into the gospel message. I mean, if we just did a show of hands and got real honest and just asked who was circumcised here, we won't do that, but uh, we, we would know it would just be the men in the room just to get gender specific here and offend the offend clown world like we did last week. Only men can be circumcised. Um, so it's not a matter of, of circumcision or not circumcision, but it is a big deal if you say you have to trust in Jesus and be circumcised. That's the hill to die on. If it's going to be a work added to the finished work of Christ, that's your hill to die on. You will literally give your life. Every one of us should give our life for that message. Be willing to die for it. And Paul would not budge for a minute. In Timothy's instance, it was not about justification by faith alone. In Titus's instance in Jerusalem, it was. And we see the maniacal plan of false brothers. There are always, always, when the gospel is preached, there's always going to be naysayers. There's always going to be haters because the devil hates the gospel of Jesus. The flesh hates the gospel of Jesus. And the world hates the gospel of Jesus. And they just want a more palpable message to be preached. Please just preach Jesus plus the law. The devil even likes that message. And the flesh likes that message because we want that skin in the game. We want to be able to say, yes, Jesus did his part, but I've done my part. And we love that one hand clap that com comes back to us. And so when the gospel is preached, this true, pure, I mean 200 proof stuff, 
There's going to be false brothers. There's going to be false teachers who say, you know what, that news is too good to be true. You do have to straighten yourself up first. You do have to trust in Jesus. And if you're going to be justified, you're going to have to prove that, you, that you're good enough. You're going to have to prove that you want to follow God. You're going to have to prove it through your life and through your works. So these false brothers were secretly brought in. I want you to look at the word false brothers in verse 4. Because of false brothers secretly brought in. What that means is the group that was brought in to spy on their freedom and to bring them back into slavery, the group that was brought in had the title Christian. They claimed to be Christians. They claimed to be brothers. But they were not real brothers. They were false brothers. And this group in Jerusalem was brought in secretly to spy on the freedom they have in Christ Jesus. They, they were there to do spy work. What is this message all about? This message about Jesus alone, the blood of Christ forgiving all of your sins without any work that we contribute to it. What is this business? Because they are very, very much like the gospel, yeah, 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 but crew today that says, yeah, grace is nice, yeah, that's nice, but you got to make sure and obey all the days of your life. And, and friends, there's always a little bit of truth in the lies of false brothers because we are called to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. We talk about that all the time. We're called to obey the Lord. He is our master. We are his servants. We are to get in line and obey and do what God tells us to do. That is our joy to do out of gratitude. But the moment these false brothers say, well, that's not just in gratitude, that's to receive more grace. Your obedience is to receive justification. That's when we have to flat out reject it. And that's what Paul did. They, they were brought in to spy on the freedom and to bring them back into slavery. Friends, the message that says Christ plus anything is the gospel message is a, is a message of slavery. It's, it's bringing chains back on yourself, and it promises freedom. And it's a lie. The devil loves false gospels. In verse 5, we see what Paul did to respond. He says this, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. I love this. The sermon title is Don't Give In. It comes from this verse. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. I love the courage of Paul. We're going to see two images of, of courage. Next, next week, we're going to look at how Paul stood alone against Peter. Even Barnabas, his good buddy, was led astray. And Paul had to stand alone. And, and if you look at these scenes, people, men who stand alone today, ladies, if you stand alone in your group of peers, you're going to be looked at as the weirdo. No, 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 no. How many people could have looked back and said, hey, Paul... You're wrong here. We all have it right. By sheer numbers, we're the ones that have the accumulation of wisdom here. You're the one that's wrong. But Paul would not yield to them even for a moment. He would not bend. Not for a second. They could have given Paul an earful. Paul, we're not twisting that gospel. We believe that gospel message that you've preached. All we're saying is that you need to be a good Jew. All we're saying is you need to do what God tells you to do. If you want to be justified. Again, it sounds so right. But these people, they're so insignificant that the Holy Spirit does not even let us know what they said to Paul. 
We don't even get to know their exact names. The, the Holy Spirit doesn't even give them the dignity to write their name in here or to tell us what their exact argument is. All we're told is that Paul would not give in to them for a minute. It was nefarious. It was sneaky. Men, supposedly Christian, snuck in to infiltrate and tear down the gospel. Friends, that's still happening today. And the question is, will Paul accommodate, not just but will Paul accommodate, but, but will, will we accommodate? Will, was Paul diplomatic? Or are we to be diplomatic? Or are we to recognize a threat for what it is and stand against it? Enemies within and enemies outside will always try to make us think we're crazy. And if we stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ for the long haul, in time, there's going to be people who try to make you think you're the weird one. That's, that's happened in clown world over the last year and a half. And I, I'm going to keep calling it clown world because uh, it's a good thing to call it. Clown world out there wants us to think we're crazy. Friends and family, the TV, the news, they want you to think that you're the crazy one. Paul had courage to stand, and so, so should we. Michael Foster said this, and I think it's applicable to even what Paul was doing here and what we are called to do as Christians. Michael Foster says this, our culture is a gaslighting culture. If you don't know what gaslighting is in the psychological world, gaslighting is, is crying out to somebody that they're doing something and calling them out for doing something that you're actually doing. Okay? So, oh, you guys are being divisive. You're being divisive. You're being divisive when I'm actually the one, like if I was the one being divisive and then saying you're divisive. This happens all the time in this, it, it, with the whole CRT stuff and cultural Marxism and socialism and all that kind of stuff. If you speak out against anything and, or say like, uh, you know, some, something about abortion, somebody's going to come out and say, but you're being divisive. I'm not being divisive. People that are for making millions of dollars killing babies, they're the divisive ones. I'm not divisive. The crowd that says, all white people are racist. I'm not, the being, I'm not being divisive when I say, no, they're not. That's racism. I'm not the one being divisive, and neither are we, to speak back, speak back against such nonsense. Our culture is a gaslighting culture. They'll try to convince you that they said that you said something that you didn't, that you didn't say. And when you don't go along with it, with the charade, the lob insults at you and throw a hissy fit. The only way to deal with this sort of culture is unashamedly defy it. Don't give them an inch. Don't apologize. Never bend. Now, this is about culture specifically, but I think it's helpful here. Paul and Barnabas did not let the arguments of these spies get any further foothold. They put it to death. And I love that. You see that the flippant kind of uh, cultural Christianity that we've kind of come up with over the last couple of years, and we've, we've talked about this recently, of just be nice, be nice, don't offend anybody. Paul knows nothing of that. Jesus knew nothing of that. No, there are some things to rally around, and what we rally around is the truth. Not just trying to be nice to as many people as possible. It's like Paul and Barnabas were saying, away with any garbage, any false gospel that says Jesus is not powerful enough to save. Because that is what they were saying. The gospel of Jesus plus circumcision is to explicitly say Jesus is not powerful enough to save. And so they put an end to it. Verse 6 through 8, we find that the apostles were standing around looking at Paul doing this. 
And the apostles couldn't add anything to it because it must have been this mic drop moment for the apostle. It's Paul at his best through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit drew the line in the sand and said, this is where the truth is. You're in or you're out. What is it? Look at verse 6. And those who seemed influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, work also through, through me for mine to the Gentiles. Paul, in his unyielding fight, and this unyielding fight in his mic drop moment was so powerful that the apostles didn't have to add anything to what he said. It's, he says clearly, where is it? Hold on, just seeing something in your head as I look for it. Uh, they added nothing to me. Yeah, there we go. Added nothing to me at the end of verse 6. Those who seemed to be influential. And we find out later that that was those pillars, Peter, James, and John. Or James, Cephas, and John. John James, Peter, and John. So they heard what the Apostle Paul was saying. And they didn't have to add anything to it. They just got behind the Apostle Paul. And they recognized the work of God through the Apostle Paul. And they recognized in this moment the same spirit that's at work in Peter to go to the Jews is at work at Paul to go to the Gentiles. They ended up extending their hand of fellowship to the Apostle Paul. But I want you to recognize the fact that courage begets courage. When the Apostle Paul fought, they didn't have to add anything. And they extended the hand of fellowship to Paul and to Barnabas. Courage begets courage. Fear begets fear. Courage begets courage. We find later, next week, we're going to find that Barnabas, in fear, walked with the apostle Peter into error. And it required Paul coming, pulling them both out of it. But in this moment, we see, as Paul is standing with courage, fighting for the gospel of Jesus, preserving the gospel for you, not just preserving the gospel for the, Gen or for the Jew Jews in Jerusalem, but preserving the gospel for the Gentiles in the Galatian churches and even for us today as Paul is standing there courageously dropping the mic and saying, here's the line. The apostles look and say, we can't add anything to that. But we recognize the Spirit of God is at work in you, Paul. Courage begets courage. Unyielding courage to stand with Paul. They recognize the work that God was doing in his life. And it was there for all to see. And so verse 9, they do something about it. Look at verse 9. They extend their hand of fellowship. And when James and Cephas or Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. When they saw Paul stand and fight for Jesus, fight for the purity of the message of the gospel, Peter, James, and John said, okay, uh, we recognize this, and they're brothers in the trenches. We recognize, Paul, that you're in this with us. We recognize that God has sent you to the Gentiles, and the work you've been doing over the years, and the work we've been hearing about is the very work of God, and we want to shake your hand and join in fellowship with you. We see God at work. They were soldiers in the Lord's army together. They're in the trenches together. Now, we talk about trenches together in this metaphor of physical warfare. In physical warfare, if you've seen the, the show Band of Brothers, you need to talk to your parents about that. Kids, don't go watch Band of Brothers. But if you watch Band of Brothers or any war story, you see that there is this unbelievable camaraderie when you're in combat together. 
Th those men, separated by decades, can come back together, and when they're in a room together or talking to each other, the men they shared a foxhole with, or the men they shared in the trenches with, the men they fought, bled, and died together with, there's a camaraderie, an unbreakable bond that's there for the rest of their life. And when you're in spiritual warfare together, fighting for a noble cause, God brings a group of people together like that. And here's what I think is going to be happening, and I think it's already happening across the board throughout the world and the United States. Over the last year and a half, there has been more, more pressure globally to the Christian church, and specifically to the Western Christian church, what we've experienced, than we've ever experienced in our lifetime. We've never had the government telling us to don't go to church, ever. That's never happened before. Uh, we've never had them require us to put things like masks on to do whatever we need to do. We've never had that kind of government interference in our life before. And what I see happening everywhere is rebelling and just getting in line. We've all seen that. But also what I see is courageous men and women all throughout the country standing together. And God is building his church. And I see re people reaching across denominational lines. People willing to stand, reaching across denominational lines and recognizing we're in the trenches together. And we're, we're engaged and ready for spiritual warfare. And we will not give in an inch. And if government overlords require us to disobey our God, we don't care what they say. We will obey our king. He is king. Jesus is king. And we're going to follow him. And we see that across denominational lines. And I praise the Lord for that. I praise the Lord for the purification that's happening in his church. Friends, we're in the spiritual foxholes together. And God is doing something in our midst, in our church, and in other churches as well, where there's just this amazing camaraderie. We're in this together. We see that in our church. Like right now, what everybody says when they come to our church for just a little bit of time is it feels like family here. It's because we are. We're purchased by the blood of Jesus, and we're purchased together. We're in the fight together. We're going to stand up for the Lord Jesus together. And we're going to have lifelong bonds and, in fact, eternal bonds because of it, by the grace of God. They extended that right hand of fellowship. Paul and Barnabas recognized, were recognized as, as missionaries to the Gentiles. And then they were asked this one final thing that's so wonderful. Remember, remember the poor. Remember the poor. Look at verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The default of human history is tyranny and poverty. That's the default of human history. Uh, that's why the American Project is so amazing, by the way. Fourth of July next week. Get some fireworks, get some flags, paint your chest, men, uh, with an American flag and run around the neighborhood with fists raised in the air. Celebrate freedom from tyranny. Every generation has to discover that year after year, decade after dec decade. Party hard next week celebrating freedom. It's not spiritual freedom. There's a lot of people in America that are free of tyranny but they're following the prince of the, the power of the air and they're still in bondage and need true freedom. But the default of human history is tyranny and poverty. And in that day, Paul, Paul's day, there was poverty everywhere. Poverty like we don't regularly see, that we don't see in this country. And Peter, James, and John asked Paul to remember the poor. Now, Paul would have recognized, uh, he tells us this in Galatians, let us, do everyone, let us do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. But there were many people in the churches that Paul was going to that were very poor, even though, just like in Thessalonica, they were, they were required to work hard. They were faithful brothers and sisters working hard, but, but in the midst of poverty, you can work hard and still not have food on the, on the table. You can be a hardworking person, doing all that you're required to do, and still struggle to make ends meet. And they tell Paul, remember the poor. Now, Paul knew that this meant Christians first, the non-Christian poor Second, 
We take care of each other. That's what Christians do, that we always have, we always do. And Paul didn't have to go somewhere to find the poor. He didn't have to go to the next village. Poverty was everywhere. You just saw it everywhere. They were in their midst. And Christian poor, they were expected to work, like we said in 2 Thessalonians. But there was this eagerness to take care of each other. Only remember the poor. And Paul says, that's the very thing I was eager to do. And in this body, the implications are, if we're ever in a spot, and I've seen this happen in our church, we take care of each other. We take care of the poor in our midst. We take care of those who are in need. And if we ever come to a spot, anybody in this, in this church comes to a spot where you're needing something, you're needing something, and you can't make the ends meet, then let us know we want to take care. We should be eager to take care of each other. This has marked the Christian church down through the ages, taking care of the poor in our midst, and then taking care of the poor in the world. That's why in the history of the world, Christians run to the Black Plague as everybody else was running away. Christians knew their eternity was secure, so they would run towards sickness, not away from sickness. That's the weird, perverted, inverted nature of what we've experienced the last year and a half is Christians shaking in their boots over fear when they should be running right at it. Not afraid. Not afraid. They weren't afraid of the bubonic plague. They just wanted to love people and care for them because they knew where their eternity was. The gospel of Jesus affected the way they took care of each other. That's what we do. We take care, and that's what Paul wanted to do. Now, to wrap things up, the Holy Spirit is going to connect the dots for you. Courage to stand and courage to tell. I want to challenge you this morning. I want to challenge you through the power of the Holy Spirit to be like the Apostle Paul. The man who said, follow me as I follow Christ. False gospels are everywhere. That's the warning. False gospels are ever, everyone, everywhere. Tell the real one. How many times in your life do you hear people say something about the gospel of Jesus and internally you know that's not right? That is just not right. But you don't want to go there because it's like, I don't want to offend them. I just, I don't want to go there. Now there's times to let offenses lie and to overlook offenses. There's times clearly when it's like, okay, these are disagreements. We don't need, this isn't a hill to die on. But how many times upon hearing somebody talk about Jesus and what he has done for them, you hear them and it's just like, that is just not right. And we just let it, let it go. Because we don't want to offend. I want to challenge you instead to say to them, whether it offends them or not, say, you know what, I love you, but that's not right. That is not right at all. And I want to challenge you. It's, it's not about trusting in Jesus and then doing all this other stuff and then hopefully maybe one day being good enough to get in. Going to church and just getting your life in order and just changing some things in your life, that's not how you're saved. So we say, well, I'm just trying to get back to where I was or I'm trying to do enough good things. I'm trying to turn my life around. Say, you know what? There's no way you can do that on your own. You, you might be able to stop doing a few things, but you cannot make your heart come alive. And you need to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. That's what you need to do. The gospel is a hill to die on. Tell people the real gospel it is too serious of a message to let people twist it. Jesus plus anything must be spoken against. Um, offending people is inevitable. The question is, who are you going to offend? God or people? And who are you okay offending? More okay offending. See, God is so faithful to you and kind. 
And even in times that we've cowered away and we've shrank back in fear, Christ is still not ashamed to call you his brother. But friends, we don't have an option. We, we don't get to be ashamed of God's word. That's not an option for us. We get to proclaim it. We get to tell it. And I want us all to be like the Apostle Paul, knowing that this is going to be a hill to die on. And no, that's not right. Somebody says something wrong about Jesus, says something wrong about the gospel, speak out. Correct it. Because Jesus plus anything must be spoken against. Remember the poor. Uh, the challenge that I have today is take care of each other. Now, I think the point is broader than just simply financial or economic. Certainly, we take care of each other financially, but the scriptures call us to take care of even more than that. When we see or hear of a need, meet it. Um, the people in this church are so much, we are so much like Paul and Barnabas. I've seen this time after time after time. Need presented, people meet it. We're eager to do this, and I want to commend you for it. But if there's anybody in here beyond just physical needs or material needs or money, there are people in here that are discouraged. There are people who, who are cheer. I mean, even like what Lexi and Sean shared today. You know what? You don't not, they may not want to share that with everybody. Like, here's the details behind it. But you can come up and say, hey, you know what? I love you, and I'm going to be praying for you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to remember you. I want to do whatever I can to help you through this. And there are other people here that didn't share that, that need to hear that same sort of thing. We are eager to help the poor. Friends, courage begets courage. Fear begets fear. You want to be afraid the rest of your life? It's going to bring more and more fear. If you want to be courageous, step up and believe the gospel to be true and proclaim that gospel, courage will build. And the things that make you shake in your boots right now in fear of, oh, people aren't going to like me. Five years from now, you're going to realize, you know what, I'm free from that. God has broke me free from the fear of people. And I will die on that hill. Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Holy Spirit, just connect the dots here. I pray that you would help us. Um, God, if, if any of us have grown cold about the needs of others in this room, God, I pray that you would warm our hearts to each other, that we would love each other well, that we would meet the needs of each other. If any of us have been more okay offending you than we have been offending others, God, I pray that you would give us courage to stand like like the Apostle Paul did, that he preserved the gospel message for us. Jesus, we thank you for the true gospel, the real gospel. It says that we are sinners, that we are hopelessly rebelling against the God of the universe, that we could do nothing on our own. We could not save ourselves. We could not bring ourselves to life. We could not get to God, but the good news is that, Jesus, you came for us. You came to seek and save that which is lost. You weren't lost. We were. And you came to seek us out. And Jesus, you lived the perfect life, obeying the law of God perfectly, living the best life that's ever been lived, the perfect life, and then dying on the cross as a substitute for real sinners who have sinned against you, taking the punishment of their sins, dying in their place, and then you didn't stay dead. You confirmed your actions by coming back to life and ascending into the heavens, ascending into the heavens and being seated at the right hand of the heavenly Father, reigning and ruling until you put all of your enemies under your feet. And finally, you'll defeat death itself. Thank you for coming back. Holy Spirit, work in our lives right now. I trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.